Welcome to the People versus Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality by diving into the choices they make and the approaches they take, but also the obstacles they face and their hopes and dreams in making real change happen. I am Barbara van Passen, and I'm the host of this podcast, and I'm always looking for where and how we can make change happen. And today's episode is part of the first series focusing on women's economic justice, asking the question, how can we make COVID the game changer we so desperately need? Not just to build back better, but to build differently with an economy that works for everyone and a society in which all women's work is valued and their rights are respected. How to balance that big picture work with the urgent material needs so many communities and, and especially women are facing. Today we will hear from a funder and that's particularly exciting because power is where the money is, right? I'm sure our guest will share great insights on how we need to shift philanthropy and social justice work entirely. Today we are talking to Anurada Rajan, the executive director of the South Asian Women's Fund, and she has a long history of working on gender justice. India's only women's fund mobilizes resources to support the very individuals and grassroots organizations working for women's and trans rights in the country. I met Anurada last year, online, of course, in a series of conversation about emergent agency of women in times of COVID. And I was immediately impressed by her work and by her honesty. With India and Indian women in all their diversity being particularly hard hit by the pandemic, we will ask Anurada what she has learned and how she is strategizing to move forward. We will hear how women in the front line have been organizing and responding and what funders or anyone working for social justice can and must do differently to respond to their needs. Welcome Anurada. Thank you for making the time and being with us. Hi, thank you, Barbara, for having me on this podcast. I'm absolutely delighted and honored to be able to share my point of view. And I'm very honored that you consider this important, I think, piece of conversation around change making to happen with the Women's Fund, because we are in the business of change making. We are in the business of changing how resources should flow to support the rights of women, girls and trans communities on the ground. So I'm really happy to be part of this conversation. You were calling in from Mumbai, India, if I'm not mistaken. I think many of us who have seen the images of, of the horrible second wave earlier this year. How is the situation there now? The situation in Mumbai and I would say large parts of India is up and down. So um, we had a very many different phases of lockdown followed by un unlocking again, followed by other restrictions, followed by lockdowns. And it's been a it's been like a yo-yo sort of a ride for a lot of people working on the ground for communities for I think the general population. We're at a stage now where slowly the because of the vaccination drive that has picked up in India, it's taking a lot of time to really take off. But to the extent it's picked up, it's enabled state governments in many states to start easing up the restrictions. Also, the sheer pressure of the slowing down economy in the country is pushing. Uh, many states to reconsider and look at ways of opening up markets, opening up mobility, transport, all of that. So we're in a wait and watch mode, Barbara, at this point in terms of how we are headed. And I really, really hope that we don't see what we saw as part of the second wave, which hit India very, very badly, April and May. Yeah. And um, I'm hoping with you that 
we will never get to that situation again. So now we'll dive into the real interview. Tell us a little bit about how and why you got engaged in this work. How is it that you ended up being the director of a women's fund? What made you decide this journey and role yeah. for yourself? I think if I reflect back, how has COVID changed? I think you start connecting a lot of dots when you have the, I think when you are more physically isolated and you're not rushing you know, from one place to the other and you sort of are in constant in one space. And I think when I connect back the dots, um, I do feel that my leanings towards feminism and feminist work really stems at a very basic level from my family. If I look back at especially my mother and my mother's side of the family, which is which has a huge set of uh, women, a large number of sisters, uh, that's been a very tacit influence, I think, in the way by osmosis almost, I think, absorbed the importance of uh, women asserting their position in the family, asserting their rights in the community, following their dreams and aspirations, not allowing the situation around them to really, you know, restrict their dreams and their opportunities. So that I think has been a very tacit and underlying sort of a journey in my life. I call my mother and her sisters, the seven sisters, the Amazonian women who really got my back and have taught me that you can have such a beautiful combination of compassion and that it's needed in equal measure at all time to, to assert what you want. So that's one, I think, a very, very important part of my historical background, if I can say, has influenced my work. If you ask me if my mother or her family of women are feminists, I would say yes, but they would not label themselves feminists. But everything they do and everything they have been speaks to that school of thinking and doing. Uh, so that makes it even more, I think, uh, meaningful for me that it's in the practice of their values that they have lived these, uh, the, the feminist uh, way of being. Uh, joining South Asia Women Foundation India, SOFIN, which is a national women's fund, where we are really trying to consolidate our feminist funding agenda and look at how we can influence the flow of philanthropy to more rights-based work, to work on rights of women in trans communities. Where is it that you can bring the voices and the aspirations of smaller groups working on the ground, which are doing amazing work on movement building, which are doing amazing work on conscience, consciousness raising, on mobilization? How do you bring those voices and aspirations to the table where larger funding decisions are made, where, where allocation of larger resources are made? Now, how do you ensure that, that these aspirations and, and the kind of funding support that these groups need to be able to continue doing movement building work can happen. So in a sense, as SOFIN, we draw our mandate from the movement in its various, from the women's movement uh, in its various forms in, in India. There is no one form it takes. It has several, several forms. And we do seek to influence philanthropy to flow towards work, which is more uh, long-term, which is geared more towards ensuring that there is a transformation in the power equations between men and women and other communities in society. I'm curious to know what are some of the main things that COVID has shifted for you or what that humbling has meant in terms of how you think change happens or how you are trying to, to do that. What our experience of working and seeing the work on the ground is has been that women's groups in the community, collectives of women working in the community, self-help groups, savings groups, uh, civil society groups, I think put their, park their fears aside. And said, we have to address this need for immediate relief services and really jumped in, in a big way. 
And so the, the collectors that have been mobilized over the years through the mobilization work, which itself has in a sense dwindled because resources towards social mobilization work have definitely dwindled over the years. They've become more projectized. They've become short term. They've become more linear in terms of very, very output driven programs. Despite that, I think what we saw was a groundswell of women, of civil society groups, women's collectives coming forward to say, how can we serve our communities? How can we ensure that people don't go hungry? How can we ensure that children uh, receive food, that you know there is, there is medical uh, care provided? I think during the first, first phase of the lockdown, uh, which was all India lockdown, there was a lot of relief work that was happening and it continued. And then slowly as the lockdown sort of uh, started easing up, restrictions were removed in or oh, gradually over the over the years. I think uh, for a lot of people, researchers, um, a lot of activists working on the ground, the exact impact of what this had done, what this has done to communities, what it has done to women, girls and trans communities started emerging. You also needed a time to take a breath and, and figure out what's happening around you because when you're doing a lot of relief work and you're doing crisis management, there is no time to put your head up and look around you because you're just do, dealing with the crisis. And I think towards the end of 2020, early 21, when the restrictions have been eased up much more and there was a greater opening up of the markets, of the economy, of, of transport, of people moving around, there was a lot of reflection on what this had done. A lot of women's groups were talking. Uh, there were a lot of online platforms. People were sharing over panel discussions, over various other such forums to say how it is affecting their communities. And so you had a worsening of the disproportionate impact that I talked about on women and girls and trans people, livelihoods that were broken in the first part of the year. Economic, I think, hardships became very acute and emerged very acutely during the first lockdown, first phase also. But I think the second phase became more stark. If I may also uh, take, take two minutes to say that the impact on rural and urban India was a little different. I think urban India has been hit. I'm wary of saying they've been hit more or hit less, but they've been hit very differently and hit in very, uh, I think, inhuman sort of ways. Uh, in rural areas, with the uh, lockdown ending uh, as an opening up, towards the later half of 2020 and you know agriculture agricultural work sort of slightly picking up people being able to travel fields nearby for wage labor and so on and so forth made the situation a little better in urban areas which are not connected directly with agriculture but is completely dependent on service services and i'm talking specifically of women in the service sector women who provide services to the services as a household help as domestic workers uh, women who sell vegetables, women who sell um, other uh, products uh, of daily use, you know, who are small time vendors, there was no market for them, help them to surface from that economic hardship that they had faced. I'm just curious how all this hardship and in the case of COVID, even more so in the cities, even though often we say that rural areas and, and women in rural areas tend to be forgotten, marginalized, not included. In this case, the cities were hit very hard. Uh, because of their dependence on the service industry. How have some of these observations that you've made changed, maybe shifted the work that you've been doing? Can you say something about how you try to support women, trans people and communities through these times and now moving forward? So there are two, two three things I'd just like to highlight here. One is to say that it's very important to adopt an intersectional approach. It's, I think the value of an intersectional approach becomes even more relevant in a time like COVID because people are marginalized on so many axes on the basis of your 
gender identity on the basis of your caste, uh, which is a very uh, very big factor in India, on the basis of class, on the basis of your ethnic ethnicity, on the basis of your educational background, all of that. So I think one thing that we as a women's fund have been very cognizant of, it's and it's not driven by the pandemic. This is something that we've believed in, but it's come, I think it's become very sharp for us to look at intersectional lens of marginalization when you do your programming or when you do your um, when you're even advocating for philanthropy to flow in a particular way and that's across urban and rural areas so I think that I think has been reinforced heavily if I would say it's not something new but it's been heavily reinforced uh, by the pandemic the second thing I think and in, in moving along on the same intersectional sort of uh, space is the importance of looking at cross-sectional uh, programming I think what we have seen over the years, and again, COVID has and the lockdown has really helped us to dive deeper into this. It, it is the need for more comprehensive, integrated programs on women's empowerment and empowerment of girls and empowerment of trans people. We can no longer silo programming or grant making into very theme specific only sort of grant making because COVID has affected every aspect of people's lives. So integrated programs, the broader empowerment programs, where the agenda setting happens by the people who are affected by the problem, deciding where is the starting point and where they want to take the program to, where they want the intervention to move to, how they want to, that I think has become highly, it's, it's, it's reinforced heavily, in a sense it surfaced again heavily after this pandemic. And I'm saying this because I go back to the 80s and early 90s when we began the Mahila Samakya program in India, for example, it was a women's education program where education was defined very, very broadly as a process of consciousness raising, as a process of critical thinking and reflection. Uh, and so the agenda of where the women want to start in the collective, uh, women's collectives wanted to start in the village was based on the problems they identified as being most critical for their village. That was the starting point. And from there, they decided, okay, so now from this issue, we'll move to this, and then we'll take up this, and then we'll... it was a very organic growth in the development of those collectives, which were village-level collectives, and then got federated at a broader level, and so on. I think there are very important lessons to take back from that kind of mobilization, which is not agenda-driven by what any funder or donor or any philanthropy thinks is the big change that needs to happen. What change needs to happen has to be decided by the communities working on the ground who are affected by the problem. Yeah. So where did this go wrong? Why did why did this happen? It seems so logical, no? Well, this went wrong for a variety of reasons. I think one is uh, th there is a very heavy corporatization, if I can say, of uh, philanthropy itself, which draws its philosophy in a way and its thinking from the, the business sector profit-making sector and the profit-making sector tends to view very linear sort of they do that's that's how the sector is and it's not to say it's right or wrong it works for that sector maybe it works for the way those organizations function but if you try to impose those principles of linear thinking of saying that we have to be very efficient in the name of being efficient we will not pay attention to process if you apply those principles to the non-profit sector then you're killing killing social mobilization work and that can't be the way social mobilization work can happen. And that can't be transformatory, uh, which I would like to just say, which large business corporation has managed to change social norms? I don't know. They may have changed the way business functions, which is very effective for that sector. But if you impose that line of thinking for how social change needs to happen, 
then I'm sorry. I don't think that works in quite that way. And because uh, resources are controlled by corporations, resources are at the end of the day controlled by the business community. And when business communities bring that understanding to financing social change, there is bound to be a change in the dynamics of both philanthropy, the way philanthropy flows, and also in the way uh, programs get designed and program priorities get uh, uh, you know, identified. And a lot of this does this just flow from the global north. I mean, we know that they are the economically more powerful countries in the world. So you, you have a lot of, I, I, what I'm trying to say is that, so there are both sides. Um, the, the, there are a lot of supporters also in the global north who understand this, but I think the forces which control resources are very powerful. And as women's funds and as movements on the ground, it's about, it's about saying that, it's about challenging that and it's about saying that there's another way to do this work, which is very transformatory, which will shift the power and resources in a fundamental way. And that we need to have that dialogue. Yeah, we need to explore ways together to do this. So are because those, mm, sorry. Now I'm, I'm curious if those holding those resources and holding the power that you're referring to, are they open to such a dialogue? Are they willing to listen? Other ideas on how change happens and other ideas on how to fund social change? Yes and no. So I would say yes and no, because there is a growing realization precisely because of the activism of women's rights groups on the ground to say this is where resources need to flow. We want a claim on those resources. We are not asking for charity. We are not saying, please give us the money. We are saying, if you are serious about the business of addressing inequality, then this is the kind of work that needs to be supported, which is transformatory. Resources have to be made available in a flexible model. Resources have to be made available in a long-term, sort of with a long-term plan. And with the full realization that you're fighting thousands of years of inequality, which cannot change with a two-year program where you hand over microfinance to an organization or, you know, instruments and say, now in two years, you change everything on the ground. It's not possible. I think the strong argument that we, we do see from the scope, we, we did a scoping study recently on looking at the gender impact of COVID and the lockdown on women, girls and trans communities. Uh, so we did a desk review and we also talked to almost 47 different women and trans rights groups working across the country to understand how they negotiated the pandemic and what kind of resource support would enable them to function effectively in future. For us, a very important takeaway, which is a reinforcement, was the fact that in times of crisis, like whether it's a human-made crisis, whether it's COVID or any kind of crisis, practical needs tend to take over the agenda, and rightly so. So I saw that one of the ways in which you support women and communities is through fellowships. Could you tell me a bit more about those? So we're running two kinds of fellowships. One is on for legal fellows. Um, these are women lawyers uh, who are working um, at district courts in India, which is the primary court that is approached if anyone wants legal redress. These operate, the, the entire context in which they operate, the environment over there is very intimidating for, especially for women or people from other sexual identities for trans people to assess uh, access those forums. So uh, we are supporting women lawyers working at the district court to provide pro bono support, litigation support to women and trans litigants, and to influence the, the way a lawyering actually is practiced and make it more feminist. 
from the way it is practiced in terms of not just the operations but the environment and and you know ensuring that places or spaces in the formal court structure which are normally male dominated uh, open up and become more amenable to uh, involving women lawyers to 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 their voices to make the court space a much more i mean a, a accessible space for women and trans litigants and the second fellowship that we are running is for um is again uh, coming back to the principle of intersectionality so we are focused on economic justice but we also feel that environmental justice is a very important issue and that these two cannot be seen in isolation of each other so our second fellowship program is looking at economic justice initiatives which have a strong environmental justice angle to them so from the process that we put in place to invite applications for the fellowship to the way the selection took place to the way we are i think um, uh, engaging with the fellows we are very conscious about keeping every system very flexible easy to manage because our fellows are from the communities which have been affected by the pandemic we have another fellow who is working with tribal and uh, i would say uh, indigenous communities living in a in a forest reserve uh, which has been made into a tiger forest reserve in india and she is trying to mobilize a group there to take up alternate economic livelihood activities which enable them to stay on in that area because there's a very there's heavy pressure to evict them to kind of take the land for the forest reserve for the for, for the tiger reserve so um she's working on both ensuring that they do get rights to forest land at the same time have an economically more stable uh, livelihood uh, we have another fellow working again on solid waste management in her village uh, trying to make her village free of garbage dumps and so she is trying to use the existing government schemes to ensure that waste is converted into vermicompost and that's kind of sold to the farmers in nearby villages and becomes an economically sustainable activity this is a variety of very different small interventions that are happening on the ground but which have a potential to i think really show us the way on how you can work on intersectional themes how you can help communities which are most marginalized even among the marginalized how do you work with the more marginalized among the marginalized to ensure they able to access and control resources in their area it has been a huge challenge to say that this is how we are going to program this year for the fellows and for us because it's constantly shifting it's constantly mm. changing so to be able to accommodate and say that it's fine and we'll we'll journey this together there's that sort of co co sharing and co creation if i would say which is a very important part of feminist funding principles is something we are very committed to and we we do follow that actively mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing those examples of uh, of some of the work that you support and and I think I mean from conversations I've been having over the past months people often emphasize how important it is to acknowledge the alternatives that are already there that women are building that communities are building for the women's economic or economic justice work more generally and but I guess a challenge is always that there are these amazing examples uh, but then the structures and the policies and the politics are still there how do you see that link between that very local work where you're obviously saying that's where the change really happens but also those big structures of policies at a national and even at a global level now, can you say something about that yeah so i think the way we see it the way i i see it certainly is to say that yes the local has to influence every level above starting from the local policies to uh regional to national to global as a women's fund it's very important to be nimble to be able to negotiate those various micro meso and macro levels 
to amplify, if I would say, the learnings from the field, to amplify those learnings, um, to amplify the the success that that these uh, that these initiatives are making, and to really try and, in a way, if I would say, a question also the paradigm of scale. It's a very patriarchal paradigm of working on scale. So, what does working on scale mean? Working on scale um, does it mean that the change has to happen, uh, you know, only it's valid only if it happens over a large population. Is that what makes validates change? And I question that paradigm. I don't agree. I think I go back to the old, open, open um, I can't remember the, the gentleman who wrote this, but he said small is beautiful. And I do agree small is beautiful. And you can have a thousand plants blooming and the, the valley looks so beautiful. It doesn't have to, all of them don't have to be violets. They can be different colors. The point is, are they gearing to the same change? Are they gearing towards removing inequality? And if we do not shift our paradigms to say that small is also beautiful, it has a value, and that everything that you want to change doesn't have to be large. Everything doesn't have to happen at scale to be validated, to become valid for investment. So the connect between the micro, the meso, and the macro has to be about amplifying uh, what is working well, but I think it is also about challenging some of these paradigms. Paradigms are on what constitutes validity uh, for investment, uh, what is the gold standard for measurement. Again, that has been a heavily contested area, whose reality counts, <laughs> sort of a thing that um, I think uh, Robert Chambers writes about. Thank you for sharing those reflections. And I'm sitting at the front edge of my chair uh, listening to you because you're also challenging me a bit because I believe in systems change. We need systems change. We need structural change. And that tends to make me think big, right? Yeah. So so the, the issue of scale, and I, and I totally see what you're saying about where that comes from and challenging that, I think is really important because the amount of conversations I've had about upscaling things. Um, I, I have to say at some point, I was also a little bit done with that conversation, but your small is beautiful emphasis, which I see very much. It's a good challenging that you're doing here. And I was, I mean, I knew I, I could count on you for challenging some of the paradigms that we have uh, today and that really needs challenging. So thank you. Thank you for that. One of the big questions for this first series on women's economic justice is exactly about that challenge of those short-term, urgent, material needs that women and communities clearly have, and especially those most marginalized uh, in this difficult period and those long-term strategic goals uh, of really challenging inequality. I think it's really important to think about how that can go hand in hand. I mean, you, on the one hand, we need to balance between the two, the short-term and the long-term, but also to be strategic indeed about how, how those practical needs are then served. And I have seen amazing work about around women's leadership in times of emergencies um, and how that can also really, you know, provide a, a boost or give a boost to, to women's position in, in society. But I just wanted to check if there's other things that we can learn from this crisis in, in how to connect it to and, or, and then how to make sure that we, we continue looking at the strategic and structural work in these times of, of high need. I'll go back to what I had mentioned earlier, which I do feel is very important to sort of look at in terms of in, in these difficult times, as you're saying, what, what are the other kinds of issues or how do we reimagine social justice work in a sense? It's a very important, I would say, area for, um, for us to engage with because the ways in which social mobilization was happening in the past, uh, those those methods, those those approaches maybe don't will have to be really rethought. Uh, will have to be re-looked at. 
a lot of change making groups that are working on the ground are really wrestling with this problem so how can you use online spaces in a sense uh, or look at hybrid models of online spaces and sort of community based work to push your agenda forward how do you bring communities to become more comfortable uh, with using uh, the whole online digital platform and again our scoping study what we are finding is that a lot of women's rights groups have managed to overcome that barrier in whatever way during the pandemic a lot of them have moved online uh, things have activities have moved online and talking to people on the ground talking to groups on the ground is very essential having your ears very close to what's happening on the ground is very essential which as a women's fund we're very conscious about doing having that ears close to the ground understanding that that's very important and for them to also and this is again something that is emerging in the scoping study is a lot of groups have said that come and talk to us about what we need and come and talk to us about what will help us to function most effectively within this funding mechanism so the needs on the ground have to be identified collaboratively between the philanthropy or philanthropic organization let's say and and the organizations that require support it's a co-created design so would say uh, so one would say which is what uh, feminins funds uh, through all the collaborative funding models that we were talking about earlier are trying to say that um, the needs on the ground is something we are aware of because we are very deeply connected to uh, movements working on the ground so let we we need to be part of those discussions where corporations decide where the money needs to go because we will be able to tell you where the money should be going what kinds of groups should be getting support yeah and um, not just corporations right also governments uh, in their yes, in their funding yes, absolutely. yeah absolutely they have absolutely. a lot to learn yes absolutely so yeah i think these two are for us are very um, uh, in, in what you had asked me in terms of new new directions i think these are very important and also how to keep the to bring a strategic focus even as practical needs are getting uh, addressed through the pandemic and th- these practical needs are going to be here for a long time to stay it's not going away Yeah. Uh, but we can't get sucked into that only yeah. that's why i worry yeah. we will and that is the challenge how to make sure you don't get sucked into that only and that you find that space to reflect that's something that we've been discussing uh before and it's part of the reason why i'm doing this podcast is because i think it's so important to take that step back and reflect and i know how difficult it is everyone's really busy overloaded um i mean we've also talked about the issue of self care in previous conversations yes. Yeah. which i think you are finding more and more also probably with this pandemic um and that's at least what i'm also hearing from up from others there's a growing awareness of how important that is at all levels i i think both in the communities maybe you work with as well as within our very own organizations everyone's working so hard and is dealing with so many things at the same time um, can you say some something about how we can how we can address that how to sure. have more attention for care and self care within the work sure sure happy to share that because uh, it's a very good time to be able to share it because just yesterday we had a team reflection within sofen on the self care work that we've started in a very very initial way and what are the learnings that we as a organization are taking from that work and to begin with i i would just like to say that for us because we bring in the intersectional lens not just in terms of the uh, communities We, we sort of support um, and the, the groups that we support. We also bring intersectionality into the in issues that we support. So for us, uh, self care is actually very closely linked with economic justice, because I think in the in the pandemic period, what became very clear 
was the fact that uh, returning migrants back to their villages or even when families which didn't have mig- migrants but where, where families were just you know had to stay home because there was no mobility that was possible due to restrictions women's uh, care work increased enormously uh, during the pandemic the fact that girls were also not going to school meant that they were expected to lend a hand in the care work that was cooking or you know taking care of other people in the family and so on and so forth was something they also had to lend a hand to the kind of emotional wearing and tearing that happened uh, because of the stress of the pandemic number one and the fact that you our livelihoods have been affected uh, your income has been affected and there is a growing pressure on you to deliver on the care front care of uh, on the you know unpaid care labor front because you have to handle all the domestic chores there is so much pressure on women to ensure that food is on the table food is available at the right time uh, the wear and tear that has happened because of the stress that the pandemic has placed not just in terms of again this is a, not just a practical area sharing of workload is a strategic area it's not a practical area but it has a strategic impact so what is visible is the is the fact that there is a increase in the number of cases of domestic violence the underlying factors are all about strategically changing the power relations yeah. uh, and sharing and the expectations that are put on women exactly. uh, i think a lot of women can relate to what you're saying and across the globe i mean this is uh, yeah of course there are differences between places but such a global phenomenon that the expectations on women are incredible it's become very visible maybe finally <laughs> to more people in this crisis absolutely yeah. Uh, women and people working on these issues that I hope the rest of the world can learn from. And uh, so keep sharing, keep sharing also these lessons sure. that are coming sure. out and we'll definitely be linking to your upcoming report in the show notes. It was a very optimist conversation in a way, because I think there's a lot of potential for doing things better, but I'd like to hear from you what your biggest hope or dream is as we move forward and try to get out of this pandemic in a way that is really better different just and tackle some of the inequalities that we are facing my biggest hope or dream if i i can put it at two two i either connected i think as a women's fund my biggest hope and dream is that um, everybody all philanthropies come on board with the idea of investing sizable proportion of resources to promote gender equality because when you promote gender equality you're promoting community well-being it's not about saying it's just about supporting uh, gender rights in a, in isolation when you promote gender rights you're actually helping the entire fabric of society to become better and you're supporting intersectional rights it's like what they used to say if you educate a woman you educate a family sort of thing i think this is central and it's common sense if you ask me if you invest in this work which is transformatory then you're ensuring that in the long run your societies will be more equitable so uh, more equitable and that if there is a god forbid some situation like this again in the future you're far better prepared as a society to deal with it because we've invested in the right kinds of programs on the right kinds of issues and in the right kind of constituencies because in the pandemic in india i can tell you the the amount of work that has gone in by women's rights collectives on the ground is what has helped communities to face this with resilience to face the pandemic with resilience starting from they were involved in everything starting from distribution of rations to relief kits to uh, providing uh, counseling support so uh, the value of investing in collective action cannot be underscored more that pandemic has made that very clear so i hope my dream is that more and more resources go towards this kind of work which is on, on social justice work it's on saying that we can't have a 
a society which can grow and which can develop when, when such a large number of people are being left out of this process. To make efforts, conscious efforts, humbled efforts, to ensure that there's inclusion of those peoples and their voices in the recovery and re- recovery process, very important. That's, that's one dream. And the second, I do hope that the constraint, if I can say, so uh, how do you use the constraint that, that the pandemic has placed on us in terms of the constraint of not being able to connect physically anymore, but using online spaces and online and digital platforms? How can that become a game changer and actually enabling communities to come on a more equal footing? Because internet is not as, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you would know better that it's not just about the connectivity. It just opens up a whole world of knowledge and information, accessibility in so many ways to groups on the ground. So how can the internet become an even, um, um, even more even playing field? How do we invest in resources which make that happen? To me, that's a very exciting opportunity, if I can say, that is offered. I have been able to attend a generate, Generation Equality Forum sitting in my home in Mumbai. I would have never managed to do that if it was not for band of the pandemic. I attended the conference of the uh, International Association on Feminist Economists and heard some amazing experiences from across feminist economists from across the world, which I couldn't have done otherwise. So it is an even playing field. You have more people who are able to raise their voice. And I hope that from a global, it should take to the communities. Thank you for being with us, Anurada, and for reminding us of the importance of being humble, of listening to those doing the work, leading the change on the ground, and of the fact that small is beautiful. I wish you all the luck, not only in supporting the women and trans people that need it most, but also to influence other funders to do better. We will definitely follow up on your work and the report, which people can find in the show notes. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, write a review, share with your friends and colleagues, and don't hesitate to get in touch either. Ciao!